Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Georgia Audubon isn't just for the birds. Throughout this month, Georgia Audubon is celebrating our state's native plants and the key role they play for birds and other wildlife. We learn how our use of Georgia plants in simple landscaping can help restore natural habitats. Plus, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes shares his story from DragonCon 2022, and we'll find out how Star Wars and chess combine to raise money for charity. First, in the heart of Atlanta's Piedmont Park, a world-renowned work of art by a master sculptor hides in plain sight. A collection of interactive sculptures called Playscapes by Isamu Naguchi. Playscapes occupies a dual role, a priceless 20th century piece of modern art and as a playground for children. Joining me now via Zoom to tell us more about this Atlanta treasure is Dakin Hart, Senior Curator of the Isamu Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum in New York City. Dakin Hart, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Please Tell us about the history of this sculpture and how it was created. Well, the most interesting thing about it is that it's Noguchi's only playground in the United States. It's the only one that he was able to execute in his lifetime. At the time that it was created in the mid to, to late 70s, Noguchi had been trying for 40 years to get a playground built in New York City which is where he lived, and had run into all sorts of barriers in, in trying to do that. So he was extremely pleased and proud uh, to finally come up with the right combination of circumstances to get a playground built. So he'd been thinking about play for a long time, from the early 30s on, it had been kind of central to the way that he conceptualized sculpture. You know, one of the things that's important about Noguchi is to realize that 
he didn't see playground and priceless work of art as incompatible concepts. He was really interested in making sculpture that played a role in civic life. He said sculpture can be a vital part of our everyday lives if pushed into communal usefulness. And he couldn't think of a better way to push into communal usefulness than to make something that, that kids could interact with. Would you please describe the appearance of Playscapes? For sure. So that part of Piedmont Park is lovely. It's not far from the road. And so he did a little bit of contouring of the land around it. He built a retaining wall. So he tried to give it a little bit of a shape. He tried to create a little bit more of a, the feel of a, a glen kind of tucked away in a forest. Then he created a kind of a basically a circle and then placed various pieces of playground equipment in that circle. It probably, to most of the people who go through it and use it, it won't look that much different from a typical playground. And now, of course, because in, in Noguchi's wake and just the sort of the nature of what's happened with the development of playground equipment, now your everyday, ordinary neighborhood playground may be one that has extraordinarily complicated very well-engineered and very interestingly shaped playground equipment, which has made Noguchi's kind of subtler and subtler. But it has a number of, of things that everyone will recognize. It has a swing. It has a couple of slides in different configurations, a spiral slide and a triple slide. It has a wonderful, just very simple bump, which is a, a convex surface that is, is kind of like the archetypal small mountain in a sand pit. And then some jungle gym, monkey bar kind of things. They don't look totally conventional. He's made them in a particular way. But again, it, it, is, it will look a little bit like a normal playground, just kind of highly attuned. And it has some elements that are, again, they, they don't look as revolutionary as they did in the 70s or when he first started proposing these things in the 30s. But in, in part, that's because he's had such an impact on playground design. Wow. Some have described Playscapes and other works by Noguchi in the category of brutalism or brutalist architecture. I'm curious to know if you think that's accurate and if you could tell us what brutalism is. Wow, that's a big, big question and very loaded subject because the, the people who coined the term obviously had a point of view on a particular type of mid-century architecture using exposed concrete, very simple shapes, ended up creating some buildings that some people feel are you know, not very user-friendly, uh, not very human-friendly. But I don't think it is accurately applied at all to Noguchi in its, its sort of demeaning sense. There are some, some similarities, and of course, he knew a lot of those architects, and he worked with some architects who produced designs that people have labeled brutalist. But there's nothing inherently unfriendly about exposed concrete or painted concrete. In fact, almost all of our playgrounds feature a lot of concrete, cement in some form or another. There is a piece at Playscapes, a wonderful piece, that uses a piece of playground equipment that he created called play cubes. So it's an arrangement of cubes in a kind of pyramidal shape and then one in more of an S shape. And those are combined together into something that looks a little bit like the ruin of a Mayan temple 
that you can climb up on and jump off of. So I, you know, I think Noguchi for sure was interested in the architectural environment and he was interested in very simple shapes because simple shapes are the ones that kids can do the most with in their imaginations. It's kind of the old joke. Noguchi was very good at making sculpture and playground equipment. That is kind of like the equivalent of, you know, you, you get the, like the super fancy, battery operated whiz bang kind of toy for your child for Christmas. And they, they get it, they unwrap the present. There it is. They somehow, you know, it takes 20 minutes, but they get it out of the box. They play with it for two minutes and are bored and then pick up the box that it came in and end up spending two days playing with the box instead of the toy. <laughs> Noguchi is very, very good at making the box. So a lot of the equipment is, is simple because again, then it, it doesn't over program what should be done with it. Noguchi really thought of playgrounds the way that he thought about nature. You know, the genius of a forest or the ocean is that it doesn't come with operating instructions, whereas a lot of playground equipment was designed by grown-ups who were trying to force or encourage children to learn one specific thing. So, you know, kind of the old model that Noguchi was working against was that model of like military training equipment monkey bars and things where you were performing a repetitive activity over and over and over again to physically internalize it. Um, Noguchi didn't think that playgrounds should be based on that model. He was interested in a, what he thought of as a non-directive model, more like nature. So here are a whole bunch of things that can be used a whole bunch of different ways. Have fun, go crazy. So he really had a theory of play in mind. What kind of exploration did he hope to encourage in kids who would interact with him? Yeah, that's a, it's a great point. I think he really, it, it was quite specific in its openness. So he, what Noguchi was interested in was empirical experience. One of the most wonderful things about him is that Noguchi didn't judge or create any kind of hierarchy in his mind, of different kinds of intelligence. We learn a lot of different ways. Some of us are more oral, some are more visual, some are more physical. We know that now. And, but there are also a lot of kinds of functional intelligence. Some people are very physically intelligent. Some of us are not. Some of us are you know, sort of biased towards uh, spoken. You know, we, we tend to equate intelligence with ability or facility with the language. But there, there are a lot of people who have a different kind of intelligence. Noguchi was interested in fostering physical intelligence. So, you know, it's hard for us uh, grownups listening to this to think back to what it was like to spend a lot of time on a swing. But a swing is basically like doing math and physics problems with your body. You know, you're, you're learning how the physical universe works. You're learning the laws of nature. You're just doing it through the body. And pendulum action is a totally fascinating thing. And, and it's something that you learn, but you learn it physically and intuitively rather than in, in a book, at least when you're five or six or seven, you know, the, the way that a pendulum works, no matter how wide the swing of the pendulum for a given length, the speed with which it crosses the center point is always the same. So if you're swinging, you know, 10 feet back and 10 feet forward, or you're just swinging a foot back and a foot forward, the length of the swing is always exactly the same amount of time. It's a, it's a very, very interesting thing. It's totally counterintuitive. 
but you actually learn that with your body. Just the same way on a spiral slide, for example, you're learning about centripetal force, right? You're learning when your body is pressed against the outside of the spiral that the force wants to send your body shooting out. And the only thing preventing it is the wall of that slide and merry-go-rounds. And if you think about kind of those typical pieces of playground equipment, they, they are all ways to, again, learn something physically. Um, and of course, you can later put mathematics to all of that in physics and learn why, you know, the whys and the, the wherefores. But it's neat that playgrounds can be designed in a way that allows children to learn it intuitively. This is fascinating, Pagan. Did Noguchi show interest in interactive and kinetic art installation in other areas of his work? That's really a fascinating question. The really short answer is 100% yes and no at the same time. He didn't make kinetic art of the sort that, that you would think of from the 60s and, and early 70s, especially. He didn't make things that move like a George Rickey, but he would say that all of his sculpture is kinetic in the sense that it has it has programming built into it that shapes your your physical experience of it. So a lot of his sculpture is designed to make you move. There's a great example at the center of our garden here in Long Island City called Illusion of the Fifth Stone, which is a piece that's based on an idea that comes from Japanese garden design called Hide and Reveal, which is and basically the idea is that you can make a very small space seem huge by making sure that you're always hiding something. If you can't see everything all at once, then your brain is always extending the space out into the distance to account for the possibilities of what might be there. So Noguchi made a single big stone piece that sometimes looks like it's made out of three stones, sometimes four stones, and sometimes five stones. And you can just circle it forever because your brain never fully solves it trying to see like, how does this rock connect to that rock? Is that the same rock? Is that a different rock? Is that one on top of that one or behind that one? So it's a piece that is designed to move you around. That's his version of kinetic. Oh, wow. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the curator of the Noguchi Museum in New York, Dakin Hart. We've been discussing Noguchi's artistic playground at Piedmont Park, Playscapes. I read that Playscapes was restored pro bono on its 20th anniversary in 1996. What improvements were made? Yeah, it's actually been uh, renewed, uh, restored a couple of times. Most recently was in the 2000s. And, and again, uh, with, with funding from Herman Miller and the city, I, I know, was very grateful. And we are, too, for Herman Miller's commitment to keeping it in good shape. The, the changes that have been made are mostly to account for some of the problematic uses of some of the equipment. So like a, a door was added to the spiral slide so that people couldn't kind of camp out on the interior of it. And also play equipment standards 
have changed enormously over time. Safety standards, you know, there aren't any laws per se that constrain different kinds of equipment and what it can do, but the Consumer Product Safety Commission has a very long document that contains standards of safety. And so like, for example, just to go back to swings, swings now have a maximum length um, you probably remember, I certainly remember the swings that I got, I'm 50 years old, the swings that I grew up on were really, really long. And the big thing was trying to see if, you know, you could flip the whole thing over <laughs> and go all the way around. But it was kind of shocking, you know, how big an arc you could describe. I think some of those were 10 or 12 feet long, the chains on those swings. Um, now the maximum length is eight feet because you want um, children on them to be able to develop only a sort of to a maximum amount of momentum because uh, children don't actually get hurt very often falling off swings. The children who get hurt are the ones who get hit, who are on the ground, who get hit by children who are swinging, um, which is also why, for example, there are no more wooden swing seats. All swing seats now, it, it, this drives kids crazy because of course what they want to do is to throw the swing seat as hard as they can to try to flip the swing over the bars. But now they're all floppy and they tend to be quite lightweight because again, you don't want something that can swing into another child and hurt the child. Important safety measures. Yeah. You mentioned Herman Miller and that style of mid-century furniture wood and glass. Many associate Noguchi with that celebrated style of glass and wood furniture he designed. Would you tell us a bit more about the life of the artist? Absolutely. He had a really amazing, complicated American life. Noguchi was born in Los Angeles his mother was a, a white Irish-American girl from Brooklyn. His father was a traveling sort of itinerant Japanese poet. They met in New York City. They worked together. His mom answered a, an ad in the paper for an editor. Fell in love, had Noguchi. Um, again, he was born in Los Angeles. By that time, his father had left. He wasn't even named until he was two and a half years old. His mother took him to Japan to find his father, she ended up spending more than a decade there. Noguchi went to elementary school in Japan. That's where he actually originally started thinking about playgrounds. Um, there really weren't any playgrounds in Japan at the time. And he just remembered these kind of vast open wastes of, you know, what we can all remember of uh, a field of grass with no grass, just sort of rocks and dirt and, you know, not a very welcoming place to play. He moved back to the United States to go to high school. His mom sent him to a learn-by-doing school in, of all places, rural Indiana. <laughs> so he, he also thought of himself his whole life as a Hoosier, but a biracial Hoosier, which, you know, was not easy in the teens and 20s. Um, the really extraordinary thing about Noguchi is he lived an entire life in between. He never, as he said, felt fully at home anywhere. And so he made himself at home everywhere. He really thought of himself as a citizen of the planet. He was a great friend of Buckminster Fuller's. They met really young in their 20s, um, in the 1920s. And Bucky had this idea about Spaceship Earth. 
and Noguchi really thought of himself as a citizen of Spaceship Earth and was interested in finding ways to universalize across cultural experiences, across traditional cultures from the whole planet. He was very good at finding places where you have overlap. Anything that appeared, for example, like stack pyramids are a great example. You find pyramids everywhere. People have made them in, on, on every continent where mankind has been, barring Antarctica, there are pyramids. So that's part of why he was interested in pyramids, because it seemed to be a kind of universal human solution to the desire to climb up closer to the sky and to emulate mountains. And he did a lot of mountain emulating in his life. So he worked in York. He had a practice working in Italy, also established a home and a studio in Japan, traveled very extensively his entire life, but particularly in the 50s. In 1960, actually, Bucky Fuller wrote an essay in which he said that he believed that Noguchi was the best traveled artist in the history of mankind. Now, Bucky was also full of hyperbole, so <laughs> that's pretty hyperbolic, but it may, it's possible that it was true in 1960. And Noguchi, the other thing about him is that he never really subjected himself to other people's judgments. He hated labels. He hated categories. He didn't believe in the balkanization of creativity into one category or another. That's why he was as interested in and as proud of his Herman Miller coffee table, which bears a striking relationship to sculpture that he was making at the time. The interesting thing with Noguchi is that very often the sculptural invention comes out of design rather than the other way around. Art historians would be much happier if you said, here's this brilliant, unique piece of sculpture, and then it begot a table, and it begot a set design for Martha Graham, and it begot all these other things. But in truth, for Noguchi, it almost always went the other way around. He took some idea that he had developed in one design field or another, and then imported it into sculpture, which was a really effective strategy for him. The Noguchi Museum in New York opened three years before the artist's death in 1988. Would you tell us about your work at the Noguchi Foundation and Museum? It's really a magical place because Noguchi, it's still the only museum in the United States founded by an artist to show their own work. So we, we think of it as, and he treated it as a total work of art, it's an environment in which an artist who was interested most of all in environments got to express his ideas. And I always joke that it's sort of like his flag on the moon because he established it as a reference point. He wanted it to be a kind of a movable object in the stream of history to say, this is what I believe in, this is what I care about. And anybody who's interested can come see it and not see it really so much as experience it. Our museum is really a lot more like Central Park or Piedmont Park than it is like the High Museum of Art or the Museum of Modern Art. It's a place that you come and experience as opposed to sort of being exhausted by the demands of quote unquote learning. And it is the uh, sort of home base for Noguchi worldwide. So everything that Noguchi left when he died is at our museum. It's part of the Assam Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum. So we're also the home of the Catalogue Raisonne, which is the attempt to document everything Noguchi ever made, as well as the archives that Noguchi left, 
that's something like half a million pages of photographs and documents. And those are all, we've made those 100% accessible online in a searchable database. So anybody on the planet with access to the internet has as good access to the basic Noguchi resource material as we do at the museum on site. And that's thanks to a, a foundation grant from the Luce Foundation um, with which we were able to digitize and catalog everything. And then we have everything Noguchi left. So we, we have things like, we have his members only jacket from the seventies. <laughs> we, have, we have a very now crunchy slip and slide that he owned. We have broken VCRs, Betamax and Sony uh, and VHS. We have his furniture and we still in the kitchen in the museum, we still eat off of some of his dishes. Oh my. It's an amazing place. It's very, we, we focus on being direct and intimate and personal. Um, there are no labels, for example, on the wall of our museum. It really privileges the object and everybody's experience of the object. What about in the garden? Are there any plaques or descriptions? There aren't. Um, we have walking guides, and then we have a lot of electronic information available um, that we make easy to get to. But the garden, which is a little, it's a little miracle, honestly, in, in New York City. Noguchi called it an oasis on the edge of a black hole, the black hole being Manhattan and most of New York City. It's only about two-thirds of an acre. But when you're there, the world just drops away. And it, it really feels like going and spending that day in the country that you always want to take, but is often so hard to take or so hard to get to. But our, our garden really functions that way. It is a perfect little chunk of nature right in the middle of Long Island City. Deacon Hart, curator of the Noguchi Museum and Foundation in New York, the designer and sculptor's only playground in the United States is Playscapes, located on the western edge of Piedmont Park. More information is on our website at wabe.org. In a moment, senior producer Kim Drobes shares a story from DragonCon 2022, and we'll find out how Star Wars and chess combine to raise money for charity. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. DragonCon 2022 has come and gone, 
And this year saw 65,000 guests flood downtown Atlanta with the joy of cosplay and fandom. More than $190,000 were raised for this year's chosen charity, Open Hand Atlanta, and about 3,000 of those dollars came directly from the efforts of 22-year-old Stephen Eisenhower, also known as the chess-playing Jawa. While at DragonCon this year, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with Eisenhower and his Atlanta family, and she filed this report. For the unfamiliar, Jawas are from the world of Star Wars, and they're searchers and resellers of discarded scrap and wayward mechanicals. They're about three feet tall, and their faces are completely hidden behind rough hand-woven robes, with the exception of their glowing yellow eyes. Over the last 11 years, I've consistently noticed a particular Jawa at Dragon Con, one that sits at a table with a sign that reads, Play Chess with a Jawa. This year, I decided to approach the Jawa and began by asking, what makes a Jawa better at chess than most other beings? I can translate for him. Long nights in the sand crawler. That was Peggy Eisenhower translating for me. Proud mom to Steven Eisenhower, a.k.a. the chess playing Jawa. Some people are mother of dragons. I'm mother of Jawa. Peggy explained that it all started 11 years ago when Stephen was a little too young to enjoy the convention panels with his older brother. So his parents made a suggestion. We said, well, look, if you're bored in the panels, because we said, just set your chessboard up outside. People will play you. And so he did. And we came back, you know, an hour or so later after a panel. And he's sitting there and he's got money. Oh. And I'm like, Stephen, why do you have money? And he said, well, I don't know. People just tipped me. And he said, well, I thought I'd donate it to the charity. You know, it was like $14. So the next year he decided he'd wear his Star Wars costume. He was just a kid and he had a little Jawa costume. And he put out a little tip jar and he raised, you know, a couple hundred dollars for the charity. It was 11. And so the chess Jawa was born. This is his 10th year doing it. His goal this year is $3,000. And that's how it is. So it's 10 years and people, I mean, it's such a generous community. And so many of the people here have seen him every year because we're always in the same spot and they've watched him grow up. And so the number of people that come up to me and say, oh, we're so glad to see you again. How's he doing? How's school? And now he's in college at the University of Chicago. I mean, it's fabulous, right? I mean, he does what he loves. He's got passion. You know, it's that intersection of cosplay and philanthropy and chess and what's not to love? Peggy's pride is absolutely palatable, and she used her motherly persuasion to get the Jawa to chat with me for a moment as her actual son, Stephen. It's always nice because people come back and they're like, oh, you know, I first played you five or six years ago, and, you know, I see you every year at con. You know, the costume can be kind of brutal to wear. You know, I'm usually here, you know, approximately 10 to 6, so it's, it's long, but, you know, it's nice because, you know, I'm here, people recognize me, and I just get to play chess, so. When asked about the Jawa's win rate, neither mother nor son held back. So I win basically all, basically all of the games. Um, I lose 
maybe one or two games a year. At this point, I've been playing chess competitively since I was 10. I'm a chess expert at this point. So far this year, he's played 160 games, uh, and he's lost one. Usually, over the course of the whole weekend, he will play between 200 and 250 games, and he will lose one or two. Some years, he doesn't lose any. There are, you know, he's got friends who play chess, um, and he's got friends who do Star Wars, but we really, there's not a lot of overlap there. Yeah. Um, he is the one and only Chess Jawa. Before parting ways with the Eisenhower family, I asked one last question of the Jawa that, if you're a Star Wars fan like me, you might be curious to know. So as a Jawa, is it difficult not to try and steal the pieces off of the chessboard as you're playing? I don't think that requires translation. (laughs) That was Stephen Eisenhower and his mom, Peggy, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about the chess-playing Jawa can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll learn how nurturing Georgia's native plants can help our state's bird population thrive. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. September is for the birds. Georgia Audubon is celebrating their fifth annual Georgia Grows Native for Birds Month. During the entire month of September, they'll hold virtual and in-person events highlighting native plants and their role in restoring birds' habitats. Joining me now via Zoom, Dottie Head, Director of Communications for Georgia Audubon and Habitat Conservation Program Manager Gabe Anderley. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to be here with you. Well, I'm eager to talk with you. Why are native plants important for biodiversity? Well, native plants are really the foundation of all of our ecosystems across the world. And here in North America, over time, we've altered our landscapes quite a bit. And so much of our biodiversity, especially birds, rely directly on native plants for a variety of reasons. Ah. And Dottie, would you please tell us about the mission of Georgia Audubon and why you created this celebration? Absolutely. Georgia Audubon, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we're dedicated to building places where birds and people thrive. We perform our mission through conservation, education, and community engagement. And Georgia Grows Native for Birds Month is one of our community engagement events. It began years ago. It's just a wildlife sanctuary tour, uh, which we still do. But we have had such a blossoming interest in the integral connection between birds and native plants 
that it's kind of become a month-long celebration. And so we offer all different opportunities for people to engage with Georgia Audubon and learn more about how planting natives in their landscape can attract birds. What are some causes of habitat loss for birds? So habitat loss, you know, is caused by development on a large scale as um, people move around, you know, North America and the planet and start developing areas into places where they can live and places where we can grow different things. But not only are we losing habitat, but the habitat that we already have is actually degrading for a variety of reasons. And this can be due to a loss of native plants because of invasive plants that are coming and outcompeting many of our native plants. Our habitat can be degrading due to habitat fragmentation, where our habitats are broken up into smaller parcels that can be more difficult for some variety of animals to use. And then also due to pollution and things like the use of pesticides. These things all affect, you know, the landscapes in a variety of ways and make it more difficult for birds and other wildlife to thrive. Mm, Serious stuff. Would you tell us about a few of Georgia's native plants and why they are important to birds? Yeah, so I can start off by saying Georgia really is an amazing place. You know, we have such an amazing variety of landscapes. And because of that, there's a a great variety of birds that can be found throughout the state during different times of year as they migrate through. Kind of the flagship species that really does a great job showing the connection between birds and plants are oak trees. And Georgia is actually home to an incredible diversity of oak trees. In the United States, we have some of the highest biodiversity of oak tree species. And oaks are special because they support over 500 different species of butterfly and moth alone, and that's not including other insects. And birds rely heavily on these insects to feed and raise their young. Actually, over 90%, I think it's over 95% of birds here in North America need insects to successfully raise their young. And so if we're not having native plants like the oak tree that can provide our birds with these insects, then our birds are not going to be able to successfully reproduce or reproduce in the same numbers that they have historically. There are some signs on the street where I live, actually two houses, one next to the other. One has a sign for a company that, I guess, sprays against insect. And right next door is a front yard sign that says, spring destroys pollinators. It's like a little war right there we're seeing in their front yard signs. Is this some of what poses threats and kind of a downward spiral for birds? Certainly. Anything that's going to affect our insect populations is going to directly affect our bird populations. And so certainly uh, looking at ways we can decrease pesticides and be more mindful of the use of pesticides is going to be one way that we can help the birds. Georgia Audubon has actually spent the past two years highlighting a species of bird 
that can be found throughout the entire state flying over our houses, chimney swift. And this is a bird that relies very heavily on insects. It's what we call an aerial insectivore. And Georgia Audubon focused on building chimney swift towers to replicate where they would nest in the wild. They'd nest in tree cavities. And as people built houses here in North America, they started nesting in chimneys. And um, now people aren't building chimneys and they're capping chimneys. And so these cavities that the birds have been using have been disappearing. And so we've been building those and supporting the chimney swift in that way. But anything we can do to support insects will also directly help that species because they rely so heavily on them. And they're a natural source of decreasing the mosquito populations that, that we seem you know, very worried about. And so the chimney swift's a great species to be on the lookout for because anybody can see them. And, and it's a direct connection to how important those insects, which are coming from those native plants, are to birds and biodiversity as a whole. That's very cool. Who needs to spray if you can have birds proliferate who are insectivores? Is that how you said it? Aerial insectivores. Oh, and I an, an interesting little tidbit is that a single chimney swift can eat up to 1,000 mosquitoes per day. Oh, let's give them even more. Let them feast. What does a chimney swift look like? People say it looks like a flying cigar. <laughs> so it's kind of a long cylindrical shape with these pointed, skinny wings, and oftentimes people mistake them for bats. Chimney swifts are oftentimes going to sleep when bats are waking up. So there's a lot of movement and activity around the evening and the morning with chimney swifts, but they can be seen all day. They are a diurnal species of bird, um, and they make this really unique, chittery call that they'll, they'll do oftentimes when they're flying. So you can learn that call to identify them, but they really are quite abundant throughout the state, and, and you really can see them pretty much anywhere. And what color are the Georgia chimney swifts? They are a kind of slate gray color. They're pretty much uniform in color, but they are, yeah, a darker color. Okay, slate gray cigar flying and eating mosquitoes. I love it. I saw that Georgia Audubon partnered with Beach Hollow Wildlife Farms. That's a local plant nursery in Scottsdale. What are some of their offerings? We have everything from orange milkweed and joe pie weed and sun chokes and great blue lobelia to vines like passion vine and trees like American beautyberry, well, shrubs like American beautyberry, red buds, different hollies, native hollies, spice bush, so all sorts of offerings. And that sale will be open until September the 25th. You order online and then you can arrange, you arrange to pick up the first week in then October, either in Decatur or in Athens. So will October still be a good time to plant? Yes, absolutely. Fall in Georgia is actually the best time to be planting for a lot of our plant species. Your, your trees and stuff you can plant pretty much through the winter as long as the weather is all right. But a lot of the perennials, yeah, getting them in the ground in October and, and early November is a great time to be planting. And one thing I want to mention 
about native plant nurseries like Beach Hollow. One reason that they are really special and, and we really want to highlight them and they're really valuable for birds is, is they focus on native plants that are what we call ecotype plants. So these are native plants that are really as locally sourced as possible. And this is great because these are going to be the native plants that have the best chance of surviving and doing well. And they're adapted to, you know, the, the soils and the climate in this immediate area. So we really like to work with native plant providers that are providing locally sourced plants uh, that don't have, you know, any pesticides um, used in, in their growth. So we're really excited to be partnering with a nursery like Beach Hollow. Hmm. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with Georgia Audubon's Dottie Head and Gabe Anderley. Gabe, I saw you are teaching a plant ID workshop on September 22nd. How did you get into habitat management? I have always been interested in nature and the outdoors. Uh, and for the longest time, I was really focused just on wildlife. So looking for reptiles, amphibians, birds, and learning as much as I can about them. And as my career progressed and my interest grew, I came to realize that knowing your plants will drastically change your outlook on the natural world. And as someone really interested in ecology, learning how things are connected, plants are really critical in, in connecting and building these ecosystems. So by looking at the plants you have in your backyard, you can start to understand what kind of wildlife you're going to be seeing. And that's how I've learned that native plants are just so important. And, you know, one thing that um, you can do is go outside in your yard and, and start looking at the plants and noticing patterns and looking at how insects and birds are interacting with them. And that's why I think our sanctuary program is so great because it allows people to learn more about what's in their backyard. And I think that really starts to build a great foundation for conservation and, and for sustainability and, and kind of growing a world that's going to be a better place for not only us, but the other creatures that are here as well. So you are teaching about tangible ways people can help with habitat loss, literally in our own backyards. Absolutely. And at my plant workshop, I'm going to be focusing just on the kind of patterns that you see in plants, the things you want to start looking at to be able to more easily identify plants. And we're not only going to be looking at native plants, but some of those non-native invasive plants that many of us have in our backyards, you know, we didn't put them there, but they've shown up because of people planted them here and there over the, the past decades. And it's really important to start to learn those because those are going to be important for allowing you to kind of create a yard or a space that's going to be the best for the ecosystem as a whole. When you say invasive plants, the first thing that comes to my mind is kudzu. Is that, is that the 800-pound gorilla? Yeah, kudzu is definitely one of the, you know, it's the plant that ate the south. It's certainly a plant that is difficult to deal with. Although for the average Piedmont, Atlanta-based kind of property owner, 
Kudzu is probably not the number one. I would say English ivy is probably the number one invasive plant that we're dealing with and also Chinese privet. Those two, if you want to start with two non-native invasive plants to learn, English ivy and Chinese privet are great to learn and start removing those from your yard. Kudzu oftentimes is really along more disturbed areas along roadsides, but thankfully kudzu doesn't do as well in deep shaded forests, which we do have, you know, a good bit of here in the Piedmont region. And so kudzu certainly is a problem where it is, but it's not as widely abundant as some of these other non-native invasive species that we have. Hmm. Is English ivy the pretty ivy we see in some people's yards and along buildings? Well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) It's tough to say, but certainly I I would imagine um, it's a dark green leaf that is evergreen and it it's kind of shaped like a star. Yeah, it's very, very common. So you'll see it not only growing kind of on the ground, but where it becomes really problematic is when it grows up the trees. When it grows up the trees, that's when it kind of gets to its its form where it can really start producing fruit and weighing down heavily on the trees. And oftentimes it can lead to uh, poor health of the trees. The trees are more likely to get blown over in storms. And so a lot of our native vines don't create that same kind of pressure on the trees. And so, you know, you can go up to a tree that has English ivy, and that's what we recommend for our, our sanctuary program and people trying to manage it in their yards because it can be quite overwhelming. But if you start with the ivy that's growing on the trees, cut it just around the tree and, and get the ivy to die that's growing up the trees, that's a really good start to removing English ivy in your space. Is there any good kind of ivy or are they all villains? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure because ivy, you know, it's a common name for plants. And when we're talking common names, you know, those can be applied to a variety of plants. And so what one person might call ivy, the other person might not. But I will say there are a lot of great native vines. And so English ivy is a vine. And there are a lot of great native vines, such as Virginia creeper, coral honeysuckle, one that gets vilified often, but is actually really, really great food source for birds is poison ivy. If you have poison ivy in your yard, as long as it's not in an area where, you know, you're going to be affected by it immediately, leaving the poison ivy there is actually a really, really good thing. So there's a variety of, of native vines that can fulfill that role that English ivy is kind of in. You know, it's, it's really fun to observe. A lot of the uh, vines are actually one, like I said, really good fruit sources. So Virginia creeper and poison ivy produce great fruit for birds. But then there's things like cross vine and coral honeysuckle and trumpet vine that are awesome for hummingbirds. Hummingbirds will be all over those flowers when they're blooming at different times of year. Oh, you had me at a hummingbird. There's going to be a field trip to the Cochrane Schultz unit of the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area, led by a noted conservationist, Ken Kaufman. What can you tell us about his work? Ken Kaufman is is kind of a rock star in the birding world. He is a field editor for National Audubon, and he has also 
written a number of books and has his own field guide series, the Kaufman Guides, and he covers not just birds, but all sorts of wildlife. And he is a, a real naturalist, and he's going to be giving the keynote address on birds and the undiscovered world. So there's a lot of people who are very excited. If, if you're a birder or even a naturalist, Ken Kaufman is really a household name. So we're excited to be hosting him. Georgia Audubon's Dottie Head and Gabe Enderley. More information about Georgia Grows Native for Birds Month is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll learn what it means to be human in a digital world and hear about extension of self on view at Georgia Tech's Price Gilbert Library Gallery through October 14th. Plus, organist Jens Korndorfer tells us about a benefit concert for Ukraine at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights, on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.